You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. We had candidates who were phenomenal candidates, but they just don't represent themselves very well. And they could be the best candidate in the world, but if you can't get in front of somebody, you can't get an interview, then it really doesn't matter how great you are. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the hard truths playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. This podcast is about hard truths, the unwritten rules of what it really takes to accelerate your career. You're awesome, or maybe you're not, but do you find that your resume seems sound, but you're not attracting interest for senior roles? Or you get interviews, but no offers? No one's really saying it, but you're wondering if it's your accent or something about the way you're showing up or speaking. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Keith Wolf, industry veteran in recruiting and job placement. He's agreed to dispense with feel-good cliches and address these tough questions and more that I've crowdsourced from ambitious and inspiring job seekers. Our goal, by the end of today's show, you take away at least one actionable insight that will increase your ability to land better jobs and accelerate your career. Keith Wolf is managing partner of Murray Resources and CEO of Resume Spice, both are rated number one on Trustpilot. He's uniquely positioned to address these topics, having made Murray the go-to recruiting firm in Texas and a six times Inc. Magazine top 5,000 fastest growing company in the US. And all of that consistent success achieved through good, bad, and frankly, downright ugly job markets. Keith has spent his career transforming unknown products and brands into formidable leaders. Vice President of Marketing at Blue Star Appliances, an early member of the core teams at OrthoClear and Align Technology, which made invisible dental braces a household name, as well as work early in his career at FMCG Powerhouse Procter & Gamble. Keith holds an MBA from Harvard Business School, a BBA in marketing from University of Texas 
Austin, and he's been widely recognized. Multiple Market of the Year awards from the American Marketing Association, Silver Stevies from the American Business Association, and he gets routinely called upon for his expertise on staffing, recruitment, and employment trends by top outlets, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, CNBC, and all major media in Houston. Keith. I'm glad I get to turn the tables on you today and interview you. Pleasure to have you as a guest on 97% Effective. Well, great to be here, Michael. Really excited to be here. Maybe you won't be as hard on me as I was on you on my show whenever that was uh, you know, several, several months back, and you're gracious enough to do that, but happy to be here. Awesome. I'm going to start with a number, number 34. That is the famous Earl Campbell running back of the Houston Oilers, and actually very fitting. He was one of the first power running backs in the NFL, so another connection to a theme of this podcast around power and influence. So I want to ask you, because when you appear on CNBC and other outlets on television, you've always got a jersey of the famous Earl Campbell up on your wall. And then I was fascinated when I was looking at this, not yeah. being from Texas, that number 34 was also the number that Nolan Ryan had, Hakeem Olajuwon wore, um, who were standouts um, the world of baseball and basketball. Backstory here on that Earl Campbell jersey and any message that you're sending there? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's just getting my personality across, but it wasn't, it wasn't so much intentional. It was just one of those happy mistakes. It was during covid and I had to do those interviews at home. And so it just happened to be what was behind me. But if I didn't like it, I would have changed it. But it, it, I didn't change it because it, it does mean a lot to me. It's Earl Campbell is so Houston. He represents Houston. And, you know, in particular for me, it, it's someone that my dad and I used to follow together. And actually that that jersey there, you know, we got that signed in person by Earl Campbell. So it, it means a lot to me. But, yeah, you're right. 34 in Houston, Earl Campbell, Nolan Ryan. Hakeem Olajuwon, that's an argument that we always have. You know, who's, who's the best 34? And so Earl Campbell for me, but everybody has their, their uh, choice. <laughs> We're going to launch into a bunch of questions here. But very quickly, thank you, and you're very generous with your time, and you're incredibly busy. But just a quick short overview of what both Murray Resources, where you're managing partner, and Resume Spice, uh, where you're the CEO, what you guys do and what mm -hmm. makes you guys unique and important in this field of job placement and recruiting? Yeah, no, so Murray Resources, it's been around for 35 plus years. I've been, I've been here at the firm for 11 of those, and I was attracted to it because it, it was doing stuff that I hadn't seen other recruiting firms do. It was so tied to the quality and getting to know the individual and, and being extremely comprehensive in the search process that that spoke to me. I actually was first as a, as a candidate. That's how I met them. Right. I, I was uh, being considered for one job and the owner of the firm and I hit it off and that's, you know, Hey, why don't you work here? And so that's kind of how that happened. And it turns out that's how a lot of people kind of stumble into this industry. You don't go to school to be a recruiter and most people don't know much about the industry. I was really attracted to it for, for the reasons that I described. And then I couldn't imagine now doing anything else because every day you, you come and you can make a good living and, by the way, help a lot of people during the course of the day. So we, we work on a, a lot of different types of roles. For better or for worse, we're not a specialized firm, meaning we don't just do oil and gas. We don't just do technology. And then Resume Spice 
It's now about seven years old, and it really just started off as a natural sort of spinoff. It was a project. We had candidates who were phenomenal candidates, but probably what we're going to talk about a little bit is they just don't represent themselves very well. And they could be the best candidate in the world, but if you can't get in front of somebody, you can't get an interview, then it really doesn't matter how great you are. So we saw that and we thought, okay, we maybe we could help some people. And that's really, it's just started as a project and now it's taken off as a, as a standalone business, helping people all over the, the country and, and really the world. Excited to hear about both those experiences that you bring, particularly this point you bring as a marketer, which is mm-hmm. you know, bringing unknown or less known brands to market. So let's, let's just start before we dive into the questions about what I would just call here kind of table stakes. Mm-hmm. And I may mix some metaphors about Texas, right? But there's that old expression that you cannot put lipstick on a pig. So you know, a college grad is not going to immediately jump into the CEO of Fortune 500 company. People want to be ambitious, but they also Mm -hmm. want to be realistic. And Mm -hmm. we'll talk about ways people potentially undercut themselves um, in preventable ways and what the top people do. But just on this idea of table stakes, right? You need marketable skills and so forth. You want to just address kind of what the, the, the this, the basics are before we even talk about ways to really ratchet up and play in the 1%. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think so a lot of people who have been interviewing sort of at the manager level, when they go up to executive level, the table stakes is really the preparation. And I don't think most people understand how much preparation goes into getting ready for that role. So preparing yourself in the role that you have for your next role, but also when you have an interview how prepared your competition is. If you've never if you've never interviewed for one of those roles or you've never been on the other side, I've interviewed people for roles, I was absolutely blown away. And I knew that if I was competing against this person, there's no way I would have I would have even known that that level of preparation was being done by other candidates. And I think that's part of the perspective that a firm like ours can bring is just understanding the competition and what's expected when you are interviewing. So I'd say that's that's sort of you know, table stakes, if you're not prepared, if you think you're going to go into an interview or into a role and sort of wing it, it's, your competition isn't. And so we can talk more about that. But a lot of it comes down for a company of reducing the risk. That's essentially what they're trying to do. That's why where you went to school, it, it matters. It doesn't matter. But really, the reason it might matter, besides maybe the network, is you're reducing the risk a company is taking. So yeah, you you might not know what you're talking about, but if you went to this school, I'm assuming that all things being equal, somebody screened you at one point, and so it's just reducing the risk associated with hiring you, and whether it's kind of get probably getting ahead, but whether it's getting re- referrals from other people you've worked with, showing samples of work you've done, all of this is just part of that bigger idea of a company's making a big investment, particularly at the executive level. What can you do to reduce the risk of the hire? Mm. So that theme, reducing risk and preparation, total table stakes. Okay, you see tons of candidates across tons of industries. And when you're kind of looking at the top 1%, you know, the ones who they've all done the table stakes, they're the ones landing all the offers. They're the ones getting the outsized compensation versus the ones who, who kind of fall off. Is there another piece there? And I know we're going to talk about various elements, but one that really comes to mind or stands out to you? Well, at that point, it gets into the soft skills 
and it gets into culture fit. And what I've, what I've begun to really appreciate, and maybe when you're a candidate, you don't see it, is that if you don't get a role, and you know, there's, there's truth. If you're not getting every role you're going for, then maybe there's a problem. But if you're not getting a role and, you know, your, your inclination is to get discouraged, trust that the company in some sense knows who's going to fit and who's going to fit in with th- that culture, the social, whatever it is that you may not see as an outsider. And so, you know, they know what they're looking for. Is it perfect? Of course not. But a lot of times it's a cultural fit. They can't exactly explain it. You know, you, maybe they, you got the happy hour. It's not a sinking. There's just sort of the, these soft, um, these soft skills or these, these, these impressions that somebody's making that they don't even know. I mean, we always compare it a little bit to dating, and I think there's a lot of truth there. You don't know why you like somebody, but at the end of the day, when you get to that level and everything else being equal, a lot of it is just how well you fit with the team. I know you can't speak for all recruiting firms, but Murray really stands out. And we've been talking here about how you present, obviously, in that final interview with the company, the hiring manager, their folks who are interviewing you. But often an intermediary step is getting the attention of you guys, of an executive recruiter or a recruitment firm. Mm -hmm. And so what are things that people need to do, you know, to, to get your attention? Because if you guys are really behind someone, you're out there really promoting those individuals. Keys there that they should be thinking about when talking to recruiters? Yeah, that's a great question. And I always try to think of it from the other person's perspective. So, so I've been on all sides. Now I've been, I've been a candidate, I've hired recruiting firms and I've, you know, I've been on this side. And I think if you think of it from the recruiting firm standpoint, it's always the sense of urgency. So you, you can be the best candidate in the world but if you're targeting the wrong firm that doesn't work in that area, and you'd be amazed how many people do that, they contact us for stuff that we don't work on. And a really easy way to find that out for most firms is just go to their website, look at the types of jobs they work on. So that's step number one. Number two, if they don't have a job at that moment that is not a fit for you, the likelihood is they're not going to call you right away. It doesn't mean they're never going to call you. That might be the case. But they're most concerned because the client has asked them to fill a particular role Yes, they might be building their pipeline for later, but they're most likely going to give the most immediate attention to those people who, you know, who they have immediate um, immediate role for. It's a big frustration on our end because we do get contacted all the time by candidates who are fantastic, and nine times out of ten, I can't help them because more than nine times out of ten, we don't have anything at that moment that we're hiring for. But uh, you know, it's easy to get discouraged when you're reaching out. But the number one thing is to make sure you're reaching out to the right recruiter. Uh, you know, and, the, and then there's some things that there's just a lot of bad advice out there. And uh, just as an example, this you know, cover letters, right? So cover letters, depending on who you ask, 100%. I read them and I make decisions based on cover letters. They're super important. Every role that I, you know, that I would ever. Recruit for would have a cover letter requirement. Other people, what a waste of time. I mean, if you're spending time on cover letters. So think about who you're asking. If you're asking a recruiter whether you should have a cover letter, well, recruiters, recruiters don't need cover letters because they are the cover letter. Like that's their job. So they are the cover letter to the company. They're explaining the, the nuances of your background and why you're a particularly strong candidate that a cover letter would do. If you're hiring for a million roles, maybe not. If it's not a, a one that involves you know, at the executive level or writing, maybe not. 
But I can tell you, for me, roles that I hire for, I love cover letters because you can get a, a sense for how well someone analyzes information, what they deem to be most important, whether they're really taking the time, whether they're detail-oriented. So I, I say that to say going above and beyond, whether it's a cover letter, whether it's a it's a video that you might send in or something else, if you're taking the advice from someone who's done it and done it badly, that might have been their experience, right? So if I were to get advice, hey, never write a cover letter from candidates who haven't had success, I, would, I mean, I probably wouldn't do, really do this, but I'd want to ask them, well, can I see your cover letter? Because most cover letters are terrible. Mm. But if you're in the 2% that are great, then you absolutely should be writing cover letters or improve your cover letters You know, if you're part of the 98%. So go study success and this point around doing your homework. Let's talk about the, the getting noticed part. And everyone out there says, hey, it's the hidden job market. It is the networking where this is where most jobs come from. And the boards out there, those positions, it's almost, it's like too late. And so it's this question, right, of, you know, should you be optimizing your LinkedIn and doing things even with your resume, or should you be out there networking? And so I just address yeah. this because you guys sit there, you kind of do both, but what are some, you know, practical steps that make an impact for candidates in terms of, you know, really getting to the jobs or this, what everyone keeps saying is hidden job market? There's not one thing I would do. I would do all of it. I think networking is something that you always have to do. You always have to keep in touch with your network, not only when you're unemployed. And if you have a choice and you're looking for work or you know you're going to be, I, I hope everybody would know not to quit a job before you look because that's just, you cannot fight human nature. And human nature is, I would rather hire someone who is currently employed. You know, this this podcast is not long enough to debate why that is, but it just is the case. And so being that that is the case, if you have the choice, try, try to remain employed before you, before, before, while you're looking for a job. But yeah, the, the, the hidden job network, I, th- I just think there's this idea that people are getting jobs in other ways. If you ask most executives, it's through a recruiter or it's, th- it's through a network. That's how most people get those roles. The other thing about applying. I mean, it's just a double-edged sword. I mean, the the internet, LinkedIn, job boards, they've made it so easy to apply. It's, you know, just going back to Amazon, it's so easy to buy, right? It's so dangerous. You just click buy and you get the product the next day or that day. And everyone says, okay, well, what's the harm in just applying for a job? I mean, there is no harm other than you're just you're just muddying the waters for everybody else. And if everybody does that, it's sort of like everybody else standing up at a stadium. If everybody just sat down, we could all see. But if we're all applying to everything that we're not qualified for, then it's just it's just murkier. But that aside, for you, it's it's um, it's discouraging, right? So I'm applying for a bunch of jobs. I'm not qualified for them. And it's so easy to apply now that on the other side, recruiters are getting a 1,000 resumes. And so what are they doing? They're looking at them, but then they're a lot of times just ignoring a lot of them because they're so to go through a thousand resumes to really look through that. And I've done it. It takes a long time. And so they know that people are just starting to apply to everything. And so there's a lot more outbound recruiting than there was 10 years ago. I think that's the difference. I mean, there's always been both. But if I had to say the mix was more applicants because it was a fewer number or a manageable number. And now it's 
you still are doing both if you're on the other side, if you're a recruiter or if you're within a company hiring, but there's so much more outbound because now you can be selective of who you go after. And that goes back to, you know, having having a resume, of course, but a LinkedIn that is noticeable. I mean, that I mean, LinkedIn is incredibly important. And as somebody who is a customer of LinkedIn, I would love for there to be a competitor because it's extremely expensive, but it's a necessary evil for, you know, for all companies like ours. We spend a lot of money on it. Say more about that outbound. So this is you guys having a position and then rather than the deluge of uh, resumes that are getting, you know, automatically sent to you, you're going out and selectively looking. So what does help you? What does make candidates stand out? Yeah, I mean, first, the first thing is just to be an option. So think of yourself as a website. Think of your LinkedIn profile as a website that has been search engine optimized. So SEO, right? So if if a website, a website can sell widgets, but if it doesn't talk about widgets, if widgets are not keywords anywhere on the website, it's not going to show up when people are searching for widgets. Same thing with a LinkedIn profile, right? You you have to have a a built out profile. Start with a professional headshot, and then your your title. I see a lot of really bad advice of, you know, stand out with a unique title. This guru or that. If you're being searched, no one's searching for gurus. You know, no one's searching for ninjas. You know, they're searching for a VP of marketing. Yeah. You know, so if you call yourself a VP of ninja marketing internally, that's fine. Change it externally. You know, you have to be very deliberate and uh, literal with what you're putting on on your page. And there's so much opportunity to put awards and testimonials, examples, uh, links, media. I mean, there's some really impressive profiles. And again, it goes back to competition and reducing risk. If you've worked with people in the past, why haven't they written testimonials about you? Mm -hmm. And it could just be you haven't reached out to them, ask them. They're not just going to write it. They're not just going to, hey, one day, hey, I remember Michael, your guy, he was such a good guy. I should really go to his LinkedIn sometime and write a testimony. People don't do that. You have to ask people and you have to ask people, hopefully, as close to whatever activity you were doing with them or whenever you work together, whether it was a project, while things are fresh, that's when you're most likely to get those. So LinkedIn is absolutely critical. It's, it's, yeah, it, it, that is table stakes. And to go back to your question, I wouldn't say it's one, it's not one or the other. They're both important, but you have to have LinkedIn, even if they're looking, even if they find you another way, even through a network and you're not on LinkedIn, that would raise red flags for most companies. So that is the place to be. And I want to ask you because these extra steps, getting testimonials, listing your awards, making sure it's optimized, speaking in the language. A lot of people are talking about post on LinkedIn, talk about your expertise, write blogs or articles. Does that move the needle for recruiters and companies? It does. Uh, I think you just have to be careful about, uh, you know, the message, I think you have to be really um, thoughtful about what you're conveying. Are you coming across as a individual contributor or part of an industry in the company? Are you representing yourself? And there's nothing wrong with that. I just think it's a decision you need to make and be conscious of how it's being perceived. And so, you know, there's there's a bias I mean, and there's research that shows that, that if you have co-founder, founder, CEO in your title, companies are less likely to hire you. 
because they're just afraid that, okay, this person wants to do their own thing. And I think that's the same sort of idea, you know, with your LinkedIn profile, if you're coming across as a, as your own brand and an influencer and, and that's fine, nothing wrong with it. It's just, okay, well, are you going to fit in here as part of a team or is everything about you and what you're doing? You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. The part here of, of how you frame yourself, and let's talk about this, because one of the things which I alluded to in the, the opening was that I am getting lots of offers, right? You know, this recruiter outbound, mm-hmm. but they're, you know, because they want to de-risk or the companies want to de-risk, they're looking for someone to fill a role that I've already done. I aspire mm-hmm. to kind of moving up. And maybe the path is moving up is easier within my company. But if you're looking to, to move out and someone's saying to you, hey, I'm getting people, but they're, I'm a product manager. They're hiring me to product manager. I want to be a director. <laughs> what might be going on there? I know there's lots of situations, but is it how you're talking about yourself or can you even control that? Yeah, I, I think if you're going, I'll, I'll, I'll be the first person to say the limitations of, of anything that, you know, so with recruiting, most companies are hiring recruiters to place people who have done something, who've done that. I mean, that's the de-risking. So it's not impossible, but I'd say for most roles that a recruiter works on, they, I, it may sound strange, but if you're looking for a VP of marketing, if you're a company, you're going to ask a, a recruiting firm, can you find me a VP of marketing? Maybe I'll pay a little bit more. That's how most companies think. Maybe I'll pay them a little bit more. They'll see the upside. You know, there's something that, you know, there's some carrot that we can lay out, but they're not typically thinking, okay, I'm going to hire a director of marketing or someone at a, you know, the level below and bring them up. Not typically, but there are companies that do do that. And so that's, that's what I would look for. I would look, and also I would look for taking on responsibilities of somebody who would do that role and making sure that you have that. And that's represented on your LinkedIn profile. If there's a, I would also be cognizant of of titles. You never want to make anything up and you never want to you know, say anything that's not true, but understand that there's different titles are are used within companies that may not be the same thing at other companies, right? So I might call myself a marketing manager, and I've seen this a lot. I might call myself a marketing manager when really I'm doing stuff that a director of marketing is doing. I'm being paid like a director of marketing. There's no other marketer here. It's just the company decided to call me a marketing manager. Yeah, I see lots of that. And what what should you do then? Because you got to kind of put that. You can't write marketing director or VP. Should you clarify what that is? Yeah, I mean, I think in that instance where there's no marketing department, you'd be amazed how many companies don't even know or care what your title is. Mm. Have you even asked? Hey, you know what? I've been a marketing manager. I'm not asking for anything, but can I? You know, I've been doing this now for three years. There is nobody else. I'm essentially doing this role. I'm not asking for, you know, maybe you are. This is a different conversation, but I'm not asking for a promotion or more pay at this point. That's not the request. That's not this request. I would just like to call myself a senior marketing manager. I think it's more in line or a director of marketing or whatever the case may be. That In those cases, absolutely. Just ask for it. Yeah. And I mean, and don't get me wrong, I've seen plenty of people make up titles on LinkedIn, and I don't know how they square that with their companies, but I've seen that, and I'm not condoning that at all just to make something up. I think it's it's got to be legitimate, but just uh, I would 
I would think about that and how and and do you have an opportunity to change your your title based on what you're actually doing? We talked about this part around getting noticed, standing out. So you land the interview and you're going to proceed in the in the process, which is a big part of the battle. Let's talk about in that interview and how you show up, you've done you know all those table stakes that we talked about. The interview itself, and I will call this kind of the the intangible part of how you're showing up. Uh, you mm-hmm. guys have this expression down in Texas that I loved, uh, that dog can hunt. And you hear this, and I do 360 reviews as a coach, and when I hear, oh, this person has leadership, why? Or this person doesn't show up like a leader, and I really want to kind of hear what that means. Mm-hmm. It's that area of executive presence. It's that area of communicating with impact. You see plenty of candidates and you see how companies, when they're interviewing them, give you feedback afterwards. Are there some key elements here of how you really need to kind of show up? It's just part of the entire package. It's comfort that comes from confidence, that comes from having the experience and being told that you know, you're a strong candidate. It comes with having options. You know, you never want to be in a position with interview or any other sort of negotiation where you're desperately needing this job. So, you know, we've seen that, you know, quite a bit where we have a candidate who goes in to an interview and that everything's riding on that. And that's a lot of pressure, you know, versus going back to having a job versus not. I mean, how you present yourself is very different if you don't have a role versus if you're currently in a role. And yeah, if you found something better, you might take it, but you're not necessarily having to take that role. There's a big difference getting multiple offers. I mean, think about yourself if you're a candidate and you're deciding between three offers versus you really just had one, uh, you know, how you might present yourself and how you might come across. So I think the, all those things are part of it. You know, having, having, the, uh, having the options, having confidence, which you talked about, you know, kind of how to build that naturally. And then just being comfortable with yourself and accepting your strengths and, and being okay with that. I think that goes a long way. And, and what about... It's a topic that no one wants to talk about. Of course, it is the big topic around bias. You know, it's one thing to look at a candidate on paper. Then they kind of show up. And you mm-hmm. get everything from we view tall people as more powerful and confident. Research shows this. There may be things in terms of people that make snap judgments about you, uh, your accent. I have a lot of clients who are immigrants or actually talk about should I do accent reduction even to that level. So I just... You know, want to get some of your thoughts here on what do you see here in terms of how to how to mitigate some of these biases from a candidate's perspective first, if you're worried that those may be occurring, what can you do? Yeah, I mean, it, it would be, you know, it'd be it'd be a dishonest to say those things don't exist because, of course, they do. And and as recruiters, you even hear companies outright tell you that they're. I'm really looking for a female in this job, or I'm really looking for a male in this job. I mean, you'd be surprised at how many companies, or maybe not surprised, how many companies say that. And you know, our response is always, "We're going to send you the best candidate." And they don't—they don't think there's anything wrong with what they're saying. They're not. You know, if they did, they probably wouldn't be telling you that. We're going to send you the best candidate. It's your decision to make, and we always do send the best candidate. You know, companies are going to do, and people are going to do what they're going to do. But can you make yourself taller? 
No. Can you, you know, can you do certain things? No. If accent reduction is something that would make you personally more comfortable, do I know that that's the reason why you didn't get a job? I don't know that, but I, I can tell you again, all else being equal, if I can understand somebody better, you know, whether it's whatever the case may be, if I can communicate better, that's a, that's a positive. So if that something is, is an area that you've been given feedback on and it's something that you can do something about, I would say do something, even if it's just for your own confidence. But yeah, I, you know, it, it exists, you know, I, I think and hope it's gotten better. Um, but um, I, instead of, you know, trying to fight human nature that's out there, I would just try to make myself as confident as I could in certain areas and also put myself in the best position possible. So if I know I'm really good at something, try to do that. If I know I'm a great writer, try to present something in writing. If I know that people have said really great things about me, try to try to share testimonials. If I have been published, share that. If I'm really good over Zoom, do that. You know, tr- just lead with your strengths. Mm, yeah. We talked about what candidates can do just for a moment because your interest is in placing someone and them staying there and being mm-hmm. very successful and that's what brings companies back to you. So if we flip this around, you know, companies have no matter what they want to say, there's lots of biases in their hiring processes, right? Mm-hmm. They may ask particular questions. They're interviewers, right? Oh, mm-hmm. I had more chemistry with this person because they were like me. So we tend to hire people who look like us. Mm-hmm. Any piece of advice for companies in terms of how they better structure their process? Because they might be you know, missing Earl Campbell, <laughs> yeah. right? Not yeah. hiring him into the role for whatever reason, right? Yeah. Anything that, that companies can do. Well, I think, I mean, you, you sort of nailed it with the one word, to be structured. Mm. Most companies are not structured in how they interview. Most companies come in and the interviewer is like, okay, and he just got the resume, you know, a minute before, and he's trying to read it and maybe ask a really general question and let you talk for a little bit while he's glancing at your resume. And most people interview that way. And so not only is it not going to be a great interview, but also – your own biases are more likely to come in versus if you have a very structured process and certain things that you're supposed to look for. And if there are multiple interviewers, what we recommend is that each person, while you're, you're having the general interview, you're also focused in one particular area. That's, you know, you're focused on if it's leadership, that's what you're really looking out for. Someone else, you know, cultural fit, whatever the case may be. And that's your, that's your area because what normally happens after an interview is people sort of walk around or maybe now they trade messages over Slack. Did you, did you like them? Yeah, I like them. You like them? Yeah, I like them. Okay. And, you know, so where do you go from there? It's either, okay, I guess we hire them or there's nothing really concrete suggested. There's no next steps. There's no reasons why. And so now either you get back to the candidate right away with a positive next step or it sort of just dissolves and time passes and everyone gets frustrated. So that's, critical is to have that structure. Mm. Technology, Keith, I know this is something you care about and everywhere things are being upended, right? (laughs) With chat Mm -hmm. GPT, et cetera. We could have a whole podcast around this, but one or two opportunities you see here for, for, for job seekers in terms of ways to be thinking about or leveraging technologies or to be wary? I mean, I probably have lost most of my friends over the last month because all I talk about is ChatGPT. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I, I think this is the biggest technological disruptor 
maybe ChatGPT itself or just what it represents, the accessibility of AI to more people and to their daily lives? Because a lot of it is AI, AI, it sounds kind of out there. You know, I heard the other day, and I think it's so true, it's not that AI is going to take your job. It's that somebody using AI is going to take your job. You know, if somebody's using AI, just like it was outsourcing, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, how can you compete when somebody is using the arbitrage of overseas people who are doing the work as well as folks, whether you like that idea or not, that's reality. So if you're committed to doing everything here in the U.S. and competing with a company that has a cost structure of folks who are overseas, that's going to be difficult. Same thing with AI. Mm. So if, it, if your competition is using it, I, I think this is, you have to understand and be, if you're not a thought leader, that's fine. You have to understand what the thought leaders are doing, what they're thinking about AI and how it affects your industry. Otherwise, I really believe that you're going to be left far behind. It's the major topic today. <laughs> I've also yeah. been incessantly uh, talking and looking at it. Quick lightning round here, Keith, to, to wrap us up. One book or resource, obviously there's lots of stuff on Murray Resources. You guys have blogs, free resources, but any any one thing that you really feel like every job seeker should be reading or looking at, old or new? I'm a believer in reading something that is important at that time. So whatever it is that you want to improve on at that given time. You know, we can talk about executive presence, watch interviews with executives, watch Jamie Dimon talk. Watch them talk about things that they don't know nothing about, whether they're uncomfortable and see how they carry themselves. I, I love listening to, I, this sounds really geeky, but uh, earnings reports. I mean, hear how CEOs answer questions for analysts. It's, 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 to me, it's fascinating, mm. you know, because they don't know what they're going to ask. The stakes are extremely high and you can see how they respond. And what, it's obvious sometimes they don't know the right answer, but how they position themselves, it's, to me, that's really interesting. Books-wise, I mean, Four-hour work week for delegation, I'd say that that influenced me a lot back in the day. And Moneyball influenced me a lot. Mm. Um, those, those two things, but they're not new. I also admire you a lot as a marketer. What was the biggest influence on you that made you a great marketer? I've just always thought that way. I've just always thought I love how people think. I love what motivates them. I love, I love psychology, and that part of marketing has always been interesting to me. I've been writing slogans for brands since I was – 10 or 11 years old. And just goes back, I know this isn't, this isn't the current question. We kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but I, I got even more confident in the fact that I should focus on the area when I went to business school. Because, you know, am I world-class? I, I can't say that. But am I better than some of the smartest people around because they're really good at finance or some other things? But they actually, things that I take for granted, they have no idea how to do. And they think it's my superpower. That was really eye-opening for me. And so that, that I think, has always come a little bit natural. But um, there's a 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing, just old-school stuff, mm. just really old-school stuff, a positioning, books like that, you know, I, I just find fascinating. And so I, you know, those are kind of, for me, built the foundation. And it goes very much to what you said about leading with your strengths. Uh, a question here that's going to be tough for a guy from University of Texas and in Texas, but you know me, I love my Eagles. I love my QB, Jalen Hurts, Bama, and the Sooners. So I'm, I'm guessing that's not huge down there in Texas. But could you throw no. a bow my way and say one solid thing about him? Oh, about uh, Jalen Hurts. Yeah. Let's see. No, I actually talk about a guy. So he's 22 years old, comes into a locker room, and 
everybody just immediately says what a leader that guy is. I, I, and it, I was intentionally trying to follow him and understand why they thought that. Not that he's not, but why they don't just say that. I mean, you never hear, particularly on a veteran team, for them to talk about a rookie that way. And so what is it about him? And then I saw some interviews after the Super Bowl that he lost and just the way he spoke about it and how confident that he was that they're going to get back. And he's never thrown anyone else under the bus, whereas you know a lot of other rookies have. I just think, yeah, he carries himself really well. He doesn't, he's not super accurate, not a great passer. He lost a job in college. A lot not to like, Michael, but <laughs> leadership-wise, he's pretty solid. But he recognized, and I will add this, that he was not a great passer. And so where did he go? And this goes to your point of go study from the best. He went out to Southern California, Tom House, who trained Nolan Ryan, Dak yep. Prescott, right? Tom Brady. Yep. So yeah. very much interesting of continuing to perfect your game. Keith, awesome interview. Any final comment and how should people best reach you, follow Murray, look at Resume Spice? Yeah, uh, personally, love to interact with people on LinkedIn. Just search Keith Wolf. You'll find me there. And MurrayResources.com and Resume Spice, ResumeSpice.com. And yeah, just don't get discouraged. You know, the person, your candidate now, if you are, you're going to be on the employer side and vice versa. We're all just people trying to do our best on either side. So I think just give people grace mm. is key. Yeah. Keith, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwenderoth.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.